Our scripture reading today is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. This is the word of the Lord. It's my pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Bruce Cook. Bruce has served with InterVarsity uh, for 17 years. I think most people know InterVarsity here, but it's a ministry that reaches out to college students with the gospel. He's served the last seven years, particularly in the area of spiritual formation and prayer. He's a graduate of Covenant uh, Seminary. Uh, Bruce is from South Africa. His wife, Vessie, is here, who's from Bulgaria. So naturally, they live in Newton. <laughs> and they're here with their three children as well. Um, Bruce is at a, you know, we've actually have a lot of connection to Bruce in many different ways. Uh, Daniel and Maria have been extremely impacted by Bruce's life and his ministry. I believe he actually married Andrew and Caitlin, is that right? Or better said, performed the wedding. The other one would be kind of weird to marry the two of you. Um, Nikki and I have known Bruce and Vessie from our times up at our family camp where we go off in the summer up in Toe Nippy. It's been fun to get to know you guys. It's really great to have Bruce here. Um, I, <laughs> uh, I had a bad joke, and I'm not going to say it. I'm going to skip right over it. We, Bruce struggles with sarcasm, and it's a, yeah, I don't want to be a stumbling block for you, brother. And, uh, uh, he, I actually really appreciate Bruce very much. We enjoy our time together, and I'm so excited to have you come and share the word. Why don't you come up, Bruce? He's a passionate man of God and loves his word, and we're excited to hear what you have to bring this morning. This is Bruce Cook. Let's pray for Bruce. Lord, we thank you so much for your servant, Bruce, and I pray you will bless him now as he preaches, as he brings the word to us. Use it powerfully in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Jared. I'm very grateful uh, to be here worshiping with you this morning, very humbled for the invitation to share God's word together. Uh, One summer while I was in St. Louis, when I was in seminary, my church there sent me back to uh, work in the inner city of Johannesburg for the summer. And I was serving on a university campus during the week, and I was preaching at a church uh, on Sunday. And the church was in an area of the city that had 
years earlier experienced white flight, and so now was about 99% uh, black. But there were a few white families who were keeping this church running, and they would come back in from the suburbs on, the, on Sunday to open up the church and have a, a worship service. And one of my summer tasks was to research that area um, in case the Lord might call me after seminary to return to that church. And one week I had an idea to, that it would be a good idea to walk through the city um, into an area that was predominantly Muslim um, and go into a mosque and get to meet with the imam and talk with him about you know, what religious life was like in the city and start to learn about, uh, more about the city. And, and in fact, I thought this wasn't just a good idea I'd come up with, but had that kind of sense in my spirit that the Lord was calling on me to do that. But I was afraid. It meant walking alone through a city uh, that at that time and still was renowned for, for violent crime. It meant talking with an imam that I'd never done before and had almost no experience talking with uh, folks from the Muslim faith. It meant standing out as a kind of a young white man in a city that was predominantly black and African. And with South Africa's history of racism, that was felt very out of my control. And so I knew it was a good idea. I even suspected the Lord was telling me to go. But I never went. I was too afraid. I had too little trust in the Lord. And maybe you've had a similar experience where you've been asked to do something. It might have been just from your spouse or a supervisor or a friend or a teacher to do something or to go somewhere or to volunteer in some capacity, but out of fear you said no. Or it might have been the Lord who was calling on us, calling on you to go, but out of fear and because of lack of trust in him and his goodness, we said no. We were unwilling to join with Isaiah. When he hears the Lord ask, whom shall I send? Who shall go with us? His response is very simple. Here I am. Here I am. Three simple but very scary words, right? Here I am, send me. But his response, at least to me, it feels so free from fear. It feels so full of trust in the one who is calling him. And as I hear him saying, here I am, I want to know how he was able to be so free from fear and so full of trust in his Lord. Because I know in my heart I'm so often conflicted. I, I long to experience that freedom. I long to know that, that deep trust in the Lord. And yet often I'm so full of fear. I'm so full of fear of giving up control of what I do not know. And I suspect this is true for many of us. And so my hope is that as individuals and as families and as this church community here in this neighborhood, that we would become a people who hear our Lord calling on us, and say those three simple words, here I am, here we are. And this may be in small, small moments of going, small moments of being sent, perhaps just throughout the day as the Lord calls us to share a kind word with someone, or to extend forgiveness to someone who's hurt us, or to pray with someone at work, or invite a neighbor to church, or to share the gospel with someone, or to give sacrificially on a Sunday, or it might be in a life-altering call like Isaiah received, to upend our lives for the sake of the gospel, to go to the ends of the earth, to change our careers and head into ministry, to, to completely reprioritize our giving and the way we are living for the sake of the poor, to open up our homes to foster and adopt. 
from small to massive. Our king is always a king who calls his people. He has not stopped calling his people. He will not stop calling his people. But we can often be a people who in fear and lack of trust are reluctant to go. And so since we don't want to go, since we don't want to go, we Christians, we must come into the presence of our king. We must come into the presence of our king. Why? What happens when we come into the presence of our king? In these verses, we see that what happens is a a deep transformation that moves Isaiah to be willing to open up his heart so that he can go in called. And even though Isaiah's calling here is a unique one, we too, as children of the king, are able to come into his presence daily. And so we too are able to experience this deep transformation. It it may be in a one-time event like Isaiah where, where we are just grabbed in a dramatic way, but it may also be day by day, month by month, year by year, as the Lord more deeply transforms us and brings us into that place of freedom so that we can say ever more boldly, here I am, send me. Because the result of coming into his presence is this transformation that frees us from fear and deepens our trust in him. Because as we look at Isaiah's experience, we'll see that when we come into the presence of the Lord, we encounter our holy king. We then taste our sin and guilt, and then we become branded by grace. We encounter holiness, and out of that we taste sin and guilt on our own lips, so that we can become branded by grace. And this journey has the power to free us to say, here I am. And so let's look at what it means to encounter our holy king. Everything about the first four verses in this passage is shouting out that the king is holy, that the Lord is holy. You know, holy is a word we use often in church and religious circles, but it may be a case in which kind of familiarity is bred a casualness in our hearts. One commentator writes that God's holiness is his unapproachable and unique moral majesty. But there's one thing, however, to define holiness, and there's a whole other thing to encounter the Lord in his holiness. And this is what happens with the prophet Isaiah. One could kind of call this the shock and awe vision, as he is thrown headlong into an encounter with his holy king that involves all his senses, his his eyes see, his his ears hear, his his nose smells, and he comes to, to taste and feel the holiness of the king. In verse 1, we have the contrast between the human king, Uzziah. No doubt he was powerful when alive, but is now dead. And the true king, who is very much alive, whom Isaiah sees sitting upon his throne, soaring above him in exaltation, with his vast robe filling the temple, kind of touching the floor. And then in verse 2, we read about the six seraphim, literally the burning ones, Symbols of the fiery holiness of their creator. They are in this continuous motion flying around the Lord with two wings covering their faces and two wings covering their feet and flying with two wings. It's a terrifying vision for Isaiah because in a very real way, he is seeing six huge flames of perpetual motion flying and soaring around the Lord Almighty. But his encounter involves more than just his sight. For these seraphim are calling out to one another in voices that are shaking the very foundations of the temple, we read. They're calling out, holy, holy, holy. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear those words, I kind of think of the hymn. 
sung quietly on a Sunday morning, but in beautiful voices. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. This is not that holy. I mean, it's that holy, but it's not in that way. This is, think of it like a a stadium filled with 100,000 people who at the same moment are are kind of just shocked or in awe of something that's happened on the field and they just all in one voice cry out, wow! And at the same time, five jet planes are screaming overhead and the foundations of the temple are shaking with the noise. That is the holiness of the seraphim who is crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what they're crying out is even more awesome than the sound of their voices. In Hebrew, to repeat a word twice turns it into a superlative. So to say gold, gold means pure gold. This is, I think, the only time in the Old Testament where a word is repeated three times. To raise equality to the power of three is, as one commentator writes, to say that the divine holiness is so far beyond anything the human mind can grasp that a super superlative has to be invented to express it. And to deepen this divine shock and awe encounter with God's holiness, smoke is filling the temple. Perhaps in a small way we can begin to see and hear and smell and feel this vision with Isaiah, all of which is declaring that the Lord is utterly other, utterly fiery, utterly pure, utterly transcendent, and utterly holy. My friends, in this vision, Isaiah doesn't just come to this mental realization that, oh yes, my king is holy. He has a powerful encounter with his holy king. And honestly, when I see or glimpse the Lord like this, it makes me feel very uncomfortable. (laughs) I prefer him far more manageable, far more familiar, far more comfortable, far more under my control. I'm reminded of a scene from The Fellowship of the Ring in the movie when the hobbit Bilbo is asked by Gandalf to give up the ring and, and leave it behind, but it's kind of had his, has its grip on him already. But So Bilbo resists and he lies and he tries to manipulate Gandalf to suit his own purposes so that he can keep the ring. And then there's this moment when Gandalf realizes that gently asking and gently probing Bilbo is not getting through to him. And so he appears to grow large and dark and ominous and, and he's no longer that kind little grandfather. And in a dangerous voice he warns Bilbo, do not take me for a conjurer of cheap tricks, Bilbo Baggins. And in this encounter with Gandalf's utter authority and power and otherness, Bilbo's heart is is broken into as he realizes he cannot shape Gandalf to suit his own purposes. My friends, we too cannot shape our holy king to suit our own comfortable ends. He is not some gentle father figure that we can control. He is the holy fiery, transcendent, majestic king of the universe. You know, I I prefer nearly all the time to dwell on his nearness and his tenderness and his gentleness and his patience and his unconditional love for me, which are all beautiful, wonderful truths of the gospel. But when I dwell on these truths almost exclusively, which I have a tendency to do, I am the danger in that over time, I make God very safe in my eyes and in my heart, very manageable and very controlled for me, and therefore easy to resist when he calls on me to go and do something that will involve change or risk or giving up control or facing my fears, and perhaps this rings true for you in your walk with the Lord. My friends, we need to come 
before the Lord and encounter him in his holiness, coming into his presence in worship, bowing down before him in quiet in our own, besides our bed, worshiping him in the morning, contemplating deeply scriptures that remind us that he is holy other and he is holy, 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 Lord Almighty. This is why we need to come into the presence of our King because when we do, we do not leave him, leave that presence untouched. And in this vision, we see that Isaiah doesn't simply encounter the truth about the Lord but in a profound way encounters the truth about himself as he realizes that in the presence of a holy King, he is doomed He is lost, he is undone as he tastes his sin and guilt. In the presence of the Lord, all Isaiah can taste is his sin and guilt. Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrases part of verse 5 this way. Doom, it's doomsday, I'm as good as dead. Every word I've ever spoken is tainted, blasphemous even. Isaiah now knows that he deserves death. Why? Because he has unclean lips which doesn't seem like a big deal, but as we read late in verse 7, these unclean lips are an indication of his guilt and his sin. As one commentator put it, this judgment came about through the linking of what some might think of as the merest sin, just the word, a word that he spoke, with the remotest contact, kind of seeing the holy king at his distance. But the mixture, commentator says, is fatal. It is fatal. And Isaiah doesn't just taste his own uncleanness, but that of his people who in the previous five chapters of this book have been judged for their guilt and their sin. And so this deep conviction comes upon him. It is only possible for him to recognize, I am unclean. I am full of sin. I am guilty. And the truth is that all of us need to come under that conviction, perhaps for the first time as we encounter the Lord and His holiness, but as even as we mature in our faith, to come into a deeper and deeper awareness of our guilt and sin. Why? So that we can experience the deep transformation our souls long for. Some of you may have read or seen the movie or book, uh, read the book Unbroken about Louis Zamperini, whose plane had went down during um, World War II as he was a pilot in the, in the World War. And he incredibly survived on a raft and made it to land only then to be captured by the Japanese. And then he endured and survived horrific experiences of degradation and torture as a prisoner of war. And when the war ended, he had survived and he returned to the States alive and he got married and he had a daughter. But then, as a, probably as a consequence of all that he'd been through, his life started completely unraveling and became a, uh, an alcoholic. And then Billy Graham came to town. And his wife went to one of his you know, revival meetings and, and gave her life to the Lord. And she returned and she invited Louis to come the next night and, and Louis resisted and resisted and then he went one night and then he walked out in the middle of the service. He couldn't handle it, but then he went back on another night. And that night, as Billy Graham was preaching, this is how he recalls what happened. Of all my near-death experiences, my life never passed before my eyes. But when Billy Graham quoted scripture, my life did pass before my eyes. My life passed before my eyes and I saw an ugly life. Zamperini had suffered at the hands of terrible people who had done ugly, evil things to him. But when he came into the presence of his king, through the preaching of the scriptures and the proclamation of the truth of the gospel, all he saw was his own ugliness. And it tasted bitter on his lips as he tasted his sin and guilt and it moved him to give his life to the Lord. 
And there may be some of you here this morning who have never yet tasted your guilt and sin in a way that has made you cry out for mercy. My friends, the question for you this morning is if you were to enter into the presence of a holy God, how would you respond? Would you really still be able to say, no, I am good. There is nothing I need from you. Or would you be driven to your knees and cry out like Isaiah, I am undone. Please have mercy on me. And for those of us who are Christians, are there times in our lives when we need to come into the presence of our holy king and really stay there and sit and taste the bitterness of our sin and guilt? To weep as the Spirit leads us over our sin, over the things we have done and the words we have said, whether it is to spouses or children or the things we have thought about others or our actions that have betrayed us as we have given our lives to another God, to another lover. Why do we do this? Why is it necessary? Not simply so that we can remember that we actually aren't as good as we think we are, (laughs) although that's probably not a bad place to be for our pride. But so, so as we go, so, but secondly, so that as we go ever more deeply into the darkness of our own hearts, so that when the light of grace shines on us, which it does in the gospel, our hearts are so more, so much more deeply and powerfully transformed. I believe the danger I face and many of us face is that because we so carefully avoid going deeply into the darkness of our sin, and we just have these general confessions we get through. Grace doesn't shine very brightly in our lives. And so any transformation we're experiencing is only very shallow. So we are not freed to be able to say, here I am, send me when the Lord calls us. Coming to the presence of God is not comfortable as we encounter His holiness. And this encounter causes us to taste our sin. But it is necessary if we are to become men and women who will go when the Lord calls us. Because when we encounter our Holy King and when we taste our sin and guilt, then there is this opportunity to become men and women, people who are branded by grace. Branded by grace. Isaiah is desperate, but he's helpless. He cannot do anything to remedy his condition. He has no power in that moment. And yet, his king so graciously takes the initiative. One of the seraphim is sent to Isaiah by the king. And in his fiery hand... Hands are tongs holding a burning coal that is taken from the altar. And Isaiah, if, if I was him, I would be fearing the worst in this moment. That this is the fire of judgment coming to burn him up. But this vision is taking place in the temple. And so this is coal from the altar. The place where the substitutionary sacrifice is made for the sins of God's people. The place where the death of one brings life to another. It is therefore not a consuming fire that is approaching Isaiah, but it is a cleansing fire. And so in a powerful act of grace, the seraphim creature reaches out the tongs and touches that burning coal in the very place where Isaiah most tenderly and sharply feels his guilt and sin on his lips, touches his mouth. But it's not just his lips that are cleansed, or a particular act that is forgiven. No, all his guilt is taken away. All his sins are atoned for. At its heart, atonement means a state of togetherness 
between two people who were separate and at a distance. So an act of atonement like this is the bringing of two parties together who were estranged. The Lord and and Isaiah are brought back together. In a word, atonement captures God's solution to the human problem of sin. And then in the Gospels we read, in, in 1 John we read, this is love. Chapter 4, verse 10. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for His sin. How is Isaiah's guilt taken away? How is his sin dealt with? Through the one who became an atoning sacrifice for him and for us. Jesus is the one who takes on himself the sins of his people and then he carries them away, never to be seen again. And Jesus is also the innocent one whose blood is sprinkled upon the altar, the divine altar as he died, so that divine justice would be satisfied. It is because of Jesus that the burning coal is not one that consumed Isaiah and is not one that consumes us, but cleanses Isaiah. And it is because of Jesus that we are cleansed. It is because of Jesus that we hear not the words of judgment that that says, woe upon you, for you are guilty and sinful, but the words of grace that declare, behold, Jesus has touched your heart and your guilt is taken away and your sins are atoned for. My friends, yes, in this passage we feel the awe of coming into the presence of our Holy King and in His presence we feel the horror of our sin, but only so that in the presence of our Holy King we can not only hear these words of grace, but experience the power of this grace that forever transforms and changes us. So that we can truly say that we are a people who are branded by grace. It is the the mark we wear for everyone to see. It is what we see when we look at ourselves in the mirror. It is what we see when we look at one another in the church, in the body of Christ, as we see here is a man and a woman and a child who is branded by the grace of Jesus Christ. Their sins have been dealt with. Their guilt has been taken away. The question for us this morning is, are we simply a people who are brushed by grace and it's having very little impact on our lives, or have we been branded by the grace of Jesus Christ. I think I was branded by grace for the first time on an island off the west coast of Scotland called South Oost. Long story about how I got there, but part of it involved hitchhiking, and I was young. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, in my early 20s, I was, I was traveling through Scotland, and I made my way out to this island, and, and I had a sense that the Lord wanted to deal with me for something in some way on that island. And, and so the first night, I did what you do when you think that the Lord wants to deal with you, is you start flicking through your Bible and seeing if a verse pops out. It's not really the best way, right? But every now and again, the Lord is very humble with us and, and, and is gracious. And this verse popped out from Romans 8, verses 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it became like this dripping tap in my life, just every minute. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I would begin to think of the sins for which I felt the most condemnation, the ones that I felt most vile about, that tasted so horrible on my lips. And I thought of Jesus taking my place and being the substitute for me in those places, in those sins, and me handing it over to him. I said, and I would internally go, I cannot do that. I cannot hand that sin over to you, Jesus, to take. They are mine. I should bear the punishment for them. And the Lord just kept hammering away. Therefore, there's now no sin, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All of Saturday, I walked across the island. It was a very short, small island. And walked back, walked up and down the beach. 
And then on Sunday afternoon, I was just exhausted. I'd stayed up all Saturday night praying about it, and I could not bring myself to accept that there was no condemnation for me. And then on the final afternoon, I was walking on the beach, and it was March in Scotland, so it was cold and windy and tempestuous, and the seagulls were struggling against the, the, the wind and, the, and the, the gale, and, and the waves were breaking. I started to say to myself, therefore, there's now no condemnation for me because I am in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for me because I am in Christ Jesus. And I started to hand over each sin that I felt that I couldn't before. And this waves of grace just cleansed me and swept over me. I'd been a Christian for a number of years, but that was the first time I believe my life had been branded by grace. And I forget that, but the Lord brings me back again and again. You have been branded by my grace. There are some of you here who need to experience the Lord's grace for the first time in your life. For the first time. To say, my soul longs for this Jesus. I am yours. And have him declare over you, your guilt is taken away and your sins are atoned for. And for those of us who are Christians, the question for us this morning is, are our lives this morning simply brushed by grace or branded by grace? A mentor of mine was a professor of preaching at seminary, and so you hear a lot of people preach, and and in our seminary, every sermon had to have grace in it somewhere. (laughs) It's like third point, grace, 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 which is wonderful. But he made this interesting point. He said, you can tell the difference between preachers, young students, who knew grace and those who knew about grace. They could say the same words in the same way, but he said you could just tell the difference between those who actually knew grace and those who just knew about grace, those who were brushed by grace and those who had been branded by grace. Because if we are branded by grace, then our hearts will be freed from fear. We will experience the Lord who is utterly trustworthy so that we will become a people who are able to say, here I am. Here I am, send me. Because instead of fear, our hearts will be filled with faith in the one who has forgiven us, hope in the one who has poured his grace out into our lives, and love for the one who calls us his son and daughter. Where is the Lord calling on you to go in some way in your life at the moment? Perhaps a small but meaningful way. Perhaps a turn my life upside down and my family's life upside down way. What would it look like for you to say, Lord, I've been so branded by grace, all I can possibly say is, here I am. Here I am, send me. During that summer in Johannesburg, I said those words, here I am, but when I got afraid, I kept silent and didn't obey the Lord. After the summer ended, I was talking with a man called Brad Wass about this experience, and I was telling him all the good and reasonable reasons why I made the right decision to not go across the city on that day. And Brad simply told me in a, in a very mild rebuke, he said, you know, Bruce, the safest place you could have been on that day was in saying yes to the call of the Lord. And Brad would know. Brad had a good financial job in St. Louis. He was making decent money. He had five kids, married five kids. His life was comfortable. He was in his mid to late 30s, and the Lord called him to leave all that all behind and to go with his family to South Africa as missionaries. You might say, Why? Why did Brad and Patty do that? Well, firstly, because they knew that simply being married and simply having kids and simply having a good job does not exclude us from the call of the Lord to turn our lives upside down and go to the ends of the earth. 
He can do that at any season of our lives, no matter what we've built up. But more deeply, because Brad and Patty were and are a couple who are branded by grace. So that when the Lord came to them and said, who will go for us? They could not help themselves but say, here I am, here we are, send us. My friends, let us enter into the presence of our God and encounter our holy king so that we taste our sin and guilt and then become a people who are branded by grace. And as a people branded by grace, we will be able with great joy and great freedom and great delight to say to our father and king when he calls us to go, here I am, here I am, please send me. Let's pray. Father, you know the stories you have written in the lives of all of us. You know the stories you are writing. And you know the ways in which you want to take your word this morning and comfort us in the places where we feel afflicted and afflict us in the places where we feel comfortable. And so I pray that all of us, in a very significant way, would be either comforted by your grace or challenged by your grace or in the mystery and beauty of walking with you, both comforted and challenged by your grace so that we all would become a people who leave here with hearts that are that little bit more open to say, here I am, send me when you call us. We pray this in the precious name of your Son. Amen.